Bible, go ahead and get it out this morning. And we're going to use it. We're going to use it well. Thank God. I want to remind you, just as we said earlier, it is Palm Sunday. And uh, that, that doesn't mean that today is the day we praise the Lord. We should do that any day. But it is the day that we remember Jesus riding into Jerusalem. And uh, what we're going to do this morning is we're going to read the story. We're going to talk about it. Um, but because this particular story is best when told from all four angles. We're going to read it in 3D. We're going to read every account. And I think it, you're going to get a new view of what happened. Um, none of those accounts contradict one another. They all go together. But each one tells a different angle of the story. And I want you to see what happened on that day when Jesus rode into Jerusalem. And then we're going to see some greater truths from that. If you'll recall, the thing that they were yelling that kind of has stuck all these years is... The word Hosanna, which means Lord save. The thing is, those people that were yelling Lord save didn't exactly know what that salvation was going to look like. They didn't know what it was going to sound like or look like. They yelled it. Um, and I imagine many of them thought as Jesus was riding into Jerusalem that this was the moment he was going to be king. He was going to take over. He was going to overthrow. He was going to set himself on the throne of David. For some, it might have looked like something else. I don't think for many of them, they imagined that in a few days, he would be dying. And yet, this is one of the greatest moments. Jesus was the one that, that made the decision to ride on this colt. He's uh, not just to fulfill prophecy. See, sometimes we think Jesus did something just to fulfill prophecy because the scripture says he did this to fulfill the prophecy. But Another way you can read that is he did this and it fulfilled the, you know, this was the fulfillment of that prophecy. Um, you know, when Jesus was on the cross and he, he said, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, that he, he cried out the same words that King David wrote in this book of Psalms prophetically about the cross. I don't believe Jesus was quoting David. If you can wrap your mind around this, I believe David by the Spirit was quoting Jesus. Do you know what I'm saying? So he was prophesying that this is what would happen. So Jesus wasn't on the cross going, okay, what are my lines? What are my lines? What are some things I have to say? I got to do the prophecy thing. So it's really hard to think when you're hanging on a cross. Oh, yeah, right. I got, my God, my God, why are you? No, no, this was happening at the moment. But he fulfilled every single prophecy. Even some that people didn't even think was talking about the Messiah, he fulfilled it. And one of those prophecies was that he, the king would come riding in on this colt. He would come into Jerusalem on a donkey. You know, that this, was, this is what was said about Jesus. And I want to read you, uh, let's start in the book of uh, Luke, and then we're going to skip around a little bit. Actually, you know what? Let's leave Luke to the last. Can we do that? Sorry, let's start in Matthew. <clears throat> Let me give you some background. Let's set this up. Not long before, Jesus has been in Bethany. And if you'll remember why he first went to Bethany, he'd been to Bethany before, certainly. But uh, one of the last visits he made, uh, his friend Lazarus had died. When Lazarus died, uh, word came back to Jesus that Lazarus was very sick. But we find out Jesus already knew he was dead. So Jesus said to his disciples, he's... Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep. Let's go wake him up. The disciples said, if he's asleep, he'll wake himself up. So Jesus had to talk to them like they were three-year-olds and 
looked him in the eye and slowly said, I'll speak to you plainly, he's dead. Oh, okay. Well, I was wondering, it seemed weird that we'd go all that way. The reason they were so worried about going to Bethany, they, they let their concerns out because, they, you know, like one of the disciples said, Lord, if you go to the Jerusalem, you go to Bethany, because Bethany was two miles out of Jerusalem, so real close. It says, if you go to Jerusalem, you go to Bethany, you go to that area, they'll kill you. And he said, if you're convinced you're going to go, one of the disciples said, all right, we'll just go and die with you. We know if we go there, we're going to die. We know this doesn't end well for us. But Jesus went, and as you know, he raised Lazarus from the dead. After Lazarus has been dead, on the, on the, de- dead for four days, he raises him from the dead. Now, many of you might know this, some of you might not. But that was one of the final signs that Jesus had to complete to prove he was the Messiah, as he said he was. The Jews held that the Messiah, you know, that this was one of the ultimate signs because in their superstition, they thought that a soul hung around for three days. And after, the, after that, it was really, truly gone. And so raising someone from the dead, now that, that's not what the Bible teaches us. Bible teaches us whether you're going up or going down, it's, it's pretty instant, isn't it? Jesus told the story of the rich man. He says he died and instantly he lifted up his eyes and he was in hell. Uh, the Bible says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So we know that there is not a slow journey that you're not hanging out at the funeral going, I hope they sing this song. You're not haunting the grave. You are, you are not here anymore. The moment your heart stops beating, the moment. Now, some have said they had an outer body experience. The Lord, uh, the Lord uh, had kept them on the planet, God, didn't, God said it wasn't your time yet, and even though their hearts stopped, they didn't leave. Some have, some have had that story. But ultimately, when you're dead, your soul doesn't stick around. The Jews still believed it did, though. And so for the, them, the ultimate sign was somebody not only being raised from the dead, because Jesus had done that before, but not just being raised from the dead, but being raised from the dead after the three days was the big sign. Because remember, Jesus had raised a little girl. Jesus had raised a boy from the dead. Uh, this was not a new thing for him. But those, those had only been dead for a little bit. Lazarus had been dead for a while. So it's not a coincidence that if you read your Bible, in the book of John, when it talks about Lazarus being raised from the dead, it said it was at that moment that the Jews, the leaders of the Jews said, we now must kill Jesus. And Jesus determined, the Bible says, so after he raised Lazarus from the dead, he determined not to walk among the Jews any longer. In other words, he determined to get out of that area, and he went to Ephraim, he went to the wilderness. So he got out of town because it wasn't his time yet at that moment. And so the the leaders of the Jews, as soon as Lazarus got up from the grave, they said, that's it, we have to kill him. You find out later that they decided not just to kill Jesus, but they decided to kill Lazarus as well. Because Lazarus was living, breathing proof, a, a walking sign. I ask you something. How do people that know the prophecy and the scripture so well, well enough to know that Jesus has fulfilled every single one of them, how do they still want to kill him? Why don't they believe he's the Messiah? Seems like every time he proved he was the Messiah, the more and more he proved he was that, the more and more they wanted him dead. You might think, or you might say, well, they, they didn't actually want the Messiah. They wanted to stay in their place. And you're right. But I truly believe they thought they wanted the Messiah. They just thought the Messiah was going to be different. 
they, the more they more looked at Jesus, their hearts got hardened. And the harder they got, it was like no matter what Jesus did, they actually got harder to it. Remember, remember speaking of that rich man that, that went down to hell, Jesus told us the story and said that Abraham said across the chasm to him, he said, this rich man said, would you just at least send Lazarus back? This, this is a different Lazarus. <laughs> Don't get confused. This is another guy named Lazarus. I wish the Bible kept it clean. Everybody had a different name, but you know it doesn't work that way. Because these aren't made up stories. This is real. <laughs> so you don't just get to decide that there's only one Tony in your church or one Mary in your church. You, you get whoever you get, right? So uh, there's two Lazaruses in the Bible. One is the guy that got up from the grave, one of them that stayed dead. And that guy, the, the rich man who had mistreated this poor man named Lazarus, he said, will you just send him back so he can warn my brothers about this place? I don't want them to go here. And Abraham says to him, if they didn't believe the law and the prophets... They won't even believe a man come back from the dead. What's he talking about? He's talking about what happens when you harden your heart. That when your heart gets hard, the more you see and the more you hear, the harder it gets. And the more even, even seeing miracles. And so you've been here. Some of you, this is your story. Some of you were so hardened to the gospel that even when you saw miracles, even when you heard the word of God and it pierced your heart, you still hardened against it and it actually made you angry. Thank God, God delivered you from that. Some of you say, I still have friends. I still have family members. That's exactly where they're at right now. But God can soften the hardest of hearts. The Pharisees had hard, not just the Pharisees, the leaders of the Jewish people. So that certainly included the Sadducees and other political um, higher ups. They all determined Jesus should die. And then they said, we got to kill Lazarus too. That's dramatic, isn't it? These guys sound like the mafia, putting a hit out on Lazarus just because he got up from the grave. Give a guy a break. He already died. I mean, he died once. I know he's going to have to die eventually, but let him enjoy some life here. But they can't have evidence walking around that Jesus is the Messiah because I believe they truly thought he's an imposter. The more and more he did, even after he proved, they just thought this can't be it because what they were picturing was not what they saw. It says in Matthew 21, so Jesus had withdrawn to the wilderness, withdrawn to Ephraim. Then he did some things. You see him go to Jericho and, or, you know, on the, sorry, on the road to Jericho. And, you know, that's where he meets Zacchaeus. You see him go through some different villages. And then he comes back to Bethany. It's at Bethany that he sits at Simon the leper's house. And uh, I'm assuming Simon was a leper that was healed, right? We know that. And he's sitting at this guy's house And that's when the lady comes in and breaks this expensive bottle of perfume and anoints his feet. That's when Judas says, couldn't that have been spent on something better? And then after that, it says he he determined at that point to go to Jerusalem. Jerusalem, the city where just a little bit before, his disciples were terrified to set foot near. Terrified to come within a few miles of Jerusalem. Because they knew in Jerusalem he was a wanted man. It says that the Jews were wondering, the, you know, when the Bible says the Jews, you know, everybody in the area was a Jew. So it's got to be talking about a specific group of people. So when it says the Jews, he's not talking about Jewish people. He's talking about the leaders of the Jews, the religious and political leaders. It says at that point, they were wondering, is Jesus going to come to the Passover feast in Jerusalem? Because many people did. Because they thought at that moment, we'll seize that moment. That'll be our opportunity. Matthew 21 says, when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, 
Then Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, go into the village in front of you and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say the Lord needs them and he will send them at once. I just love, that's just a crazy story to me. We're not going to spend too much time on it, but Jesus just told his disciples to steal a car. And if the guy comes out of it saying, why are you taking my car? You say the Lord needs it. Jesus didn't even tell them to knock on the door and ask permission. Just, just start untying it. If somebody says, hey, why are you untying my coat? Why are you, talking, why are you, why are you taking my stuff? The Lord needs it. And he says, and, and they'll accept that as a good enough answer. It's amazing, isn't it? Don't anybody try that this afternoon. It worked because Jesus told them to do it. No other reason. And even if you get a revelation today in church that Jesus wants you to steal a car, I'm telling you it's wrong. Don't believe it. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say the Lord needs them and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet saying, say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did Jesus as just as Jesus had directed them. And they brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks and he sat on them. Now you might say, how did he do that? That's one of the things you'll have to ask Jesus. I don't think he sat on them at the same time. I think one of them was probably walking beside the other. I don't think he was pulling a Zorro and trying to keep one foot on one and the other foot on another. You, you can figure out the details of how that happened. I don't think that's the major point today. They, as he was going, they spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that, that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth, Nazareth of Galilee. I want you to notice that it was not Jerusalem that received Jesus with a parade. It was not Jerusalem that was yelling, Hosanna. It was not the crowd in that city that welcomed their king. It was those that went with Jesus. It was all these followers. It were people that were new converts after Lazarus got up from the grave. There were people that had been following him for a long time. There were been people that just kind of heard the crowd and started going. And it says as they got near Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city where they were terrified to go and be identified with Jesus, all of a sudden something has given them boldness. And as they get near, they begin to yell and they begin to praise God and they begin to lay their coats down because even the animal that Jesus is riding on shouldn't have to trot on this dirt. That's what you would do for a high, high royalty is you would show them honor by not making their animal walk on the dirt. That's how they greeted Jesus. But the people of Jerusalem weren't part of this crowd. The people, the natives of Jerusalem, the, 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 the homegrown people, the locals said, who is this guy? And so their, an their answer that was given to them was this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. It says in Mark 11, when they drew near to Jerusalem to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, we'll skip ahead because we, we heard about the colt. It says in verse 7, they brought the colt to Jesus and they threw their cloaks on it and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road and others spread leafy branches that they'd cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. 
want you to realize these are fighting words. It seems normal to you and me to hear them talk about Jesus in such a way. But you understand they are going into the city of David. They're going into the very city where the Messiah is supposed to come. They're going into the city where the center of their faith lay. This is where the presence of God rested for so many years. This is where the kingdom was set up and the kingdom was said to return. And they are walking into the city calling him the son of David. Calling him and and basically, in other words, they're calling him the Messiah. And they're saying he's going to set up his kingdom. So you understand why that might make some people nervous. They are, they're no longer just saying, so, you know, the people that said this is the prophet Jesus, they might have been a little chicken or they might have been misinformed, but the crowd is not just saying he's a great prophet. They're not saying this is Jesus the healer. They're saying this is Jesus the Messiah. And that is throwing down the gauntlet. That is, that is the final step. They're saying, they're drawing a line in the sand and they're saying this is who he is. The king is coming. That's going to make everybody really nervous. It says, Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. So, so you see what many of them are thinking, even though they are quoting scripture, even though this is exactly what they should say, probably when they're saying it, they don't realize what they're saying. They don't realize that that kingdom is not going to be a kingdom they can see. It's going to be a kingdom that's much bigger. Probably many of, many of them think this is the moment Jesus is taking over. He'll kick Herod out, he'll kick the Romans out, and he'll take his place. And if we have to fight, we'll fight. At that moment, they don't realize that in a few days, that crowd in Jerusalem is going to yell, crucify him. They don't realize in a few days, he's going to have no one speak up for him on his trial. That this crowd somehow is going to disappear. Because their expectations weren't met. Because it looked different than they thought it was going to look. Hosanna in the highest in verse 11. And he entered Jerusalem and he went into the temple. When he looked around at everything as it was already late, he went back to Bethany with the twelve. In John chapter 12 and verse 12. It says, the next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So once again, these are outsiders, right? This crowd is the crowd that came to Jerusalem for the feast. This is not the people that belong in Jerusalem. These are the people that came to celebrate the feast. So these are, coming, these are the country people coming from all the surrounding villages. Thank God for country people, amen? They were the ones that recognized Jesus. A city folk... Which, if you can call Lord Minster people city folk, I guess you can. It was us city folk that didn't recognize Jesus because it was the city folk that were so caught up in their political aspirations and their, in their place, they were a little bit nervous about what, what that meant. It, the Bible tells us that many of the rulers of the synagogues all over this province, many of the rulers of the synagogues believed in Jesus but were afraid to confess him because of fear of the people. They thought they'd be put out of their place. They thought they'd lose their jobs. And you might say, ha, bunch of wimps. But can you imagine being a minister at a church and all of a sudden you realize what you've been preaching for so long is wrong? 
Can you imagine being part of a religion where that was how you, that's how you made your living? You weren't trained to do anything else. You were, you were educated in this, and then all of a sudden you realize that, uh-oh, we're doing the wrong thing. You imagine you were part of another religion that didn't know anything about Jesus, and all of a sudden you believe in Jesus, and, and everybody in your village, I mean, I'm not talking about North America, think about another country where, where a leader, a religious leader, all of a sudden has been supported by his community, his community all believes one thing, he believes this thing, and then he realizes he's wrong, he's missed it this whole time. You realize by turning to Jesus, you're not only turning your back against your community in their eyes, but you're going to lose your job, and you're going to lose your position. So many of them were more afraid. The Bible says because they feared men more than they feared God. They didn't confess Jesus. They were undercover believers. It's really sad, isn't it? Here it says, the large crowd who'd come to the feast, when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, they took their branches, they took their palm branches, and they went out to meet him crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. even the king of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and he sat on it just as it is written, fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. And the crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and he raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. I want you to hear those words. It says they continue to bear witness. Do you know that being a witness is not a silent job? Being a witness means you see something and you say something. When they continue to bear witness, it means they kept telling people, we saw a guy get up from the dead and he was dead for four days. It says the crowd that were with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb. You wonder why that guy gave up his colts, you know, his animals so, so freely when Jesus asked, where was that guy from? He was from Bethany, from the surrounding area at least. He was so close, he probably lived just a little bit away from where Lazarus got up from the dead. You wonder why this guy was so willing to give up his animal when they said the Lord has need of it? Probably because that guy witnessed Jesus get a man up from the grave. So there were people that had no guts, were spineless, they were wimps, they didn't want to identify with Jesus in public, but now they've seen something they can't deny. They're full of excitement, and they continue to bear witness. I want you to realize that as Jesus is riding, the Bible, doesn't, the Bible indicates to us that he's not saying a word this whole time. You know who's making all the noise? It's the people. So those people that were with him went in front of him, and they went behind him. You ever, you ever go out and watch the parade and, and you hear the music from far off? It gets closer and it gets closer and it gets closer. And all of a sudden you're surrounded by it. Can you imagine being in Jerusalem and hearing a noise and seeing dust get stirred up by the Mount of Olives and you're wondering what's going on? And all of a sudden, you see a big group of people. They're making fools of themselves. They're waving palm branches that they cut. And I don't know if it, they cut it from their own field. It seemed like they cut it from somebody else's. I don't know how cool that guy. The Lord has need of it. Chop. They're waving these palm branches. They're laying it down. And you're going, who is this guy? It says here that they continue to testify about him. And in verse 18, the reason... Why the crowd went to meet him was that they had heard that he'd done this sign. What sign? He'd raised Lazarus from the dead. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see 
that you are gaining nothing, look, the world has gone after him. Once again, we see some of the best compliments you ever paid or what your enemies say about you. The whole world's gone after this guy. You see, we're not doing any good here. All of our little plans are falling apart. We find out in another place that, that later he's confronted. He's confronted first about his disciples because his disciples are too noisy. And it's not that they're making loud noises. It's what they're saying with their noises. The Pharisees, the leaders are saying, quiet your disciples. That's not because it was a noise violation and people are trying to sleep in the middle of the day. It's because they were saying he was the Messiah. Jesus says, if they don't say it, the rocks will say it. We find out in another place that another thing they were upset about was that the next day, or maybe it was even the same day, little kids are running into the temple saying these things. I mean, isn't it amazing that sometimes kids can be the greatest annoyance and yet God uses them more than anything? And these kids are running in the temple going, Hosanna, Hosanna, the king is coming. And he says, shut the kids up. And Jesus says, if I shut them up, the rocks will cry out. And then it says, you know, haven't we heard that out of the mouths of babes and infants, you've ordained praise. These kids were right. They were the only ones brave enough to go to the temple and say it, but they were right. You see, when I grew up and I thought about Palm Sunday, I thought everybody was happy to see Jesus. But when I read these stories, just like we're reading them today, you realize this was the beginning of a battle. This was a drawing a line in the sand. Once you crossed it, you couldn't go back. This was a conflict. It was a city that was in uproar. It was a group of people that wanted Jesus dead. And there were a group of people with Jesus that were just too unashamed and just were bold and were going to proclaim Jesus to anybody that would listen. And here it says, if we turn to Luke, and we'll, we'll, this will be the, of course, we've read all three other ones. So this will be the final version that we read. In verse 37 of chapter 19, as Jesus was drawing near, it says, as soon as he was approaching near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the miracles they had seen, shouting, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. I want you to see that picture. They're walking with him, but as soon as he gets to that descent, as soon as he gets to that point where he's coming, he's coming near the descent of the Mount of Olives, he's coming over that place, and he's about to descend in Jerusalem, all of a sudden one person starts shouting, and it spreads and another person starts shouting. Pretty soon the whole crowd is shouting. I don't know if any of these guys would have the guts to do it if they were by themselves. But somehow when they were together, boldness came on them. And as soon as they see Jerusalem, they start to get loud. We could learn something from this. They were loud about this. And I really think there are some things worth shouting about. I think there are some things worth being loud about, and it makes us uncomfortable, especially nice Canadians like us, makes us uncomfortable. 
but will yell when Canada whoops the U.S. in hockey. Sorry to you. <laughs> she cheers for Canada. I don't know. We have people that listen to the podcast from the States. I apologize, but my wife's been converted. She's a Canadian fan. We'll yell about that, won't we? Someday, the Oilers are going to win some games. And we'll yell about that. It's got to happen someday, right? There are things worth shouting about, and the things that we have to shout about are worth what much more than those things. And you can't stay passive when you shout. That's why some people, that moment of being set free comes with a shout or comes with a dance. It's because it's impossible to stay passive when you're shouting. You can't. Just try it sometime. Try to keep perfectly calm while you're shouting. It's impossible. It breaks things loose in you. And these people suddenly got the guts to shout even though they knew it could get them in trouble. Maybe they thought, there's so many of us, what can they do? Or maybe they just were so overwhelmed by the majesty of the Messiah that it didn't matter who was listening. In fact, it mattered, but it mattered more what he thought. Yeah. Glory to God in the highest. Verse 39, some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, teacher, rebuke your disciples. They probably thought they were doing him a favor. Jesus, you could get in real trouble. You don't realize what your disciples are saying. Do you know what they're saying about you? They're saying of the Messiah. <laughs> I, I thought you'd want to know. He says, I tell you, if these become silent, the stones will cry out. This tells me some things have to be said. Some things have to be said. This had to be said. It had to be shouted. When he approached Jerusalem, he saw the city and he wept over it. He said, if you had known in this day, even you, the things which make for peace. But now they've been hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will throw up a barricade against you. They will surround you and they will hem you in on every side. They will level you to the ground and your children within you. And they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. It's interesting that this parade ends with tears. It's not the tears of the crowd, it's the tears of Jesus. I know that pretty much everybody in the room, you say, I didn't miss my day of visitation. I've received Jesus. I didn't reject him. Maybe I rejected him for a while, but I've received him now, and I thank God with you. You did not miss your visitation. You receive Jesus, and he is your Savior, and he has become to you everything you need. But there are other visitations. There are moments of visitation. You might say, you might think that means Jesus shows up in your room. It very well could be that, but that doesn't always have to be what it looks like. Your moments of visitation hardly ever look like what you think they're going to look like. It's not, I'm not talking about God appearing to you. I'm talking about God wanting to do something in your life. I'm talking about God wanting to set you on his path. I'm talking about God putting you in, a, in an opportunity to step into what he has for you, to step into his way of peace, to step into his path, to really submit your life to him. And in those moments where he's either pushing you or he's holding you, whatever, it's at those moments Often those moments where God is attempting to shift us. Now, could he do it? Is he strong enough? Could he shift us without our, without our will? Absolutely, he could. 
But we see scripturally that he desires for your will to be involved. And that you have a choice whether you're going to obey or disobey God. If that weren't true, Jesus wouldn't be crying right now. Jesus wouldn't be weeping right now. He was weeping because they had a chance and they rejected him. It's only a few, a few decades later when what he's prophesying comes true exactly. Later, he'd walk through the temple and say, not one stone is going to remain upon another. This temple will be torn down. He's not only talking about the physical temple, he was talking about his own body being torn down because he says, in three days, I'll raise it up again. But only if three decades later, like 33 years later, the Romans came to squash a rebellion. Vespasian was the first Roman general to come and squash this rebellion. He was called away and later would become emperor of Rome. His son Titus took up the task and squashed, mercilessly squashed this Jewish rebellion until all that was left were the rebels in Jerusalem that had walled themselves in. They got so hungry because what Jesus said, they will barricade against you, happened. They get so hungry that some people resorted to some pretty awful things to stay alive. Until finally, the Romans and their siege weapons broke through the wall. The walls came down, and the Romans began to do what they would do to punish and put down rebellion. They set fire to the buildings. Titus said, don't touch the temple. The temple's holy. We're going to leave it alone. But as soon as the fire began to lick the stones of the temple, gold began to melt out because it had been built with gold as well as many other materials. And when the soldiers, the Roman soldiers saw that gold, they lost all control and they tore the temple piece by piece apart until nothing was left. No stone was left upon another. What's hard to realize is that didn't have to happen. Jesus said it didn't have to happen. He said, if you only knew what would made for peace. But these things have been hidden from you because you did not recognize the day of your visitation. It's interesting that Luke tells this story. Nobody else talks about it, but Luke does. Luke was a historian who went and interviewed eyewitnesses. And so I believe every one of them remembered this moment and said, yeah, Jesus started to weep when he looked at Jerusalem. And it says this, that as he said this, we got to remember that beginning of Luke starts out with the birth, the prophecy of the birth of John the Baptist and then the birth of John the Baptist. And in Luke chapter 1 I want to read you what Zechariah prophesied about John and about Jesus. He says in verse 68, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited us and he has accomplished redemption for his people. Do you see that that was the visitation? He said he has visited us he says, he has raised up a horn of salvation for us. And in the house of David, his servant, as spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from old, salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. 
What did Jesus say? Jesus said, now your enemies will surround you. He says this, to show mercy toward our fathers, to remember his holy covenant, the oath which he swore to Abraham our father to grant us that we being rescued from the hand of our enemies and might serve him without fear and holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you child, he's talking to John, will be called the prophet of the most high for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways to give his people the knowledge of salvation by the forgiveness of your sins. You notice that Jesus said, if only you had known We said, John, you're going to give them knowledge. And Jesus is going to give them knowledge. It says here, because of the tender mercy of our God, with which the sunrise from on high will visit us, to shine upon those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. Now Jesus is at the end of his life saying, if only you had known the things which make for peace but they've been hidden from your eyes because you did not recognize the day of your visitation. You notice here that Jesus doesn't say, I decided not to visit you. He doesn't say, you missed it. I, you, I was going to do it, but then I didn't. He said, you just didn't recognize it. It's not that God didn't visit them. He visited them. He visited them not only in subtle ways, but in in miraculous ways. They saw the signs, they saw the wonders, and they still rejected it. Why didn't they recognize the day of visitation? Because it didn't look like what they thought it was going to look like. Why was this crowd that followed Jesus that was, was so excited that he was coming into the city and saying, save us, Lord, save us. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Why only a few days later were they either silent or joining in the crowd saying, crucify him? Why? Because the king that they were looking for was not the king they saw. Because they defined what it looked like. Because he didn't meet their expectations. They got bitter. They got resentful. They rejected him. And I want you to see something here. Because in the book of Hebrews, it's written not only to believers, but it's also written to a great group of Hebrew Jewish people that are on the fence and not quite sure whether they're going to jump in. And he says this, and it's a powerful thing. The writer of Hebrews says, and many times he says, today if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts. He says, don't be taken away like your fathers did by the sin of unbelief. Then he says this, later on he says, how will we escape then if we neglect so great a salvation? How then will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? Do you see what he's saying to them? He's saying, if you miss this, the Lord is here to save you. The Lord is here to rescue you. But if you neglect it, what chance do you have? Maybe when you read that, you go, well, thank God I'm saved. And I think you should say, thank God I'm saved. But you know, when I read that, I also see myself. Because I understand that I've received Jesus. I understand that I'm saved. I know I'm going to heaven. I know that I'm born again. I have that assurance. I know who I am in Christ. And yet I also recognize that there are times where my unbelief stems from the fact that it didn't look like I thought it was going to look like. 
Because the writer of Hebrews goes back and compares this salvation where Jesus came and they didn't recognize it. He compares it many times to the Israelites who were afraid to go into the promised land. The Bible tells us that many of their grumbling came because they were discouraged about the way. What really discouraged them was the way they got there. What discouraged them were some of the things that happened on the way. It just didn't look like they thought it was going to look like. How many of you have been discouraged because of the way? How many of you have been discouraged because it didn't look like you thought it was going to look like, and so you've backed off? How many of us miss the salvation of the Lord because we thought it was going to look like this, and it didn't look like this, and so we miss it? And in these moments, we've got to say, God, I know that you've come to rescue I know you've come to guide my feet into the way of peace. I know that you have come to save. I know you've come to deliver. And so I am going to say, when you come and you visit, I don't care what it looks like. I don't care how much it messes up my schedule and my plans and everything I've said before. I am going to follow. I'm going to say, all right, you're good. I, you, I trust you. Because when we miss our visitation, we serve a merciful God. Thank God. Isn't it wonderful to know? Isn't it wonderful to know that there are people in Jerusalem? You ever think about that, that man who's at the gate? Right after the day of Pentecost, when Peter and John are going into the temple, and there's a man who gets healed. Do you ever think about what that man might have thought? There's been a healer walking around for three years, and I missed him. Now he's dead. Well, they say he's risen, but he's not here to heal me. And yet, two men walk by. And he asks for some money, and he ends up walking away with his healing. Do you understand that how many people think they missed it? God is faithful to give you another chance. Today, if you're sitting here thinking, I did miss it. I did miss it. I know that God was shifting us. I know that God was drawing us. I know God was leading us. And I missed it because of my own fear. Or I missed it because of my own insecurity. Or I missed it simply because it didn't look like I thought it was going to look like. And I was either disappointed or scared or whatever. I want you to know, we serve the God who comes back again. And says, I'm going to give you another chance. You might have missed your visitation. But it's never too late. As long as you still draw breath, it's never too late to call on the name of the Lord. And be delivered. I think about that crowd and that, that parade often. I think about just the, I mean, like, we're not talking about a year later they turn against Jesus. We're talking about days later. They turn against Jesus. What made them do that? What made them afraid or what made them angry? Because we know the disciples didn't turn against Jesus. They just didn't stay with him. The bravest ones were probably John and Peter. We think it's John. He doesn't name himself. We know Simon Peter got close enough to look Jesus in the eye as he just denied him. That was better than the other guys. At least John stood at the foot of the cross and looked up at Jesus with his mother, with Jesus' mother Mary and looked it up as he was dying on the cross. We don't have any evidence that any of the other disciples were even near there. What made them so afraid? What made them so angry, some of them? It's because Jesus wasn't the king they thought they were going to get. And in their disappointment, they missed what he was doing. 
His salvation was so much bigger than they knew. Jesus rode into that city not to rescue them from the Romans, but to rescue them from the devil. Isn't that awesome? Isn't that awesome? It's like the difference between, you know, uh, uh, I mean, it's, it's, it's just, I can't even draw a good parallel. <laughs> Forget that. It's, I mean, it's so big. They think he's going to win this little battle and he wins the war. I mean, he just came in. The Bible says, for this purpose, the Son of God was manifest to destroy the works of the evil one. I think about that, that week. As they were seeing defeat, the heavens were seeing victory. In that week, as it seemed like Jesus had just lost everything and his disciples are most discouraged, the kingdom of hell, the kingdom of darkness is crumbling in front of them and they don't even see it. (laughs) Our day of visitation is a day of salvation. And I want to tell you what, what we quoted Hebrews and I want to tell you what it says in the book of Hebrews. Well, you know what, let's, let, actually, what, even better, let's talk about what it says in Romans. In Romans chapter 10, it says, the word is near you, and the, in your mouth and in your heart, that is the word of faith that we are preaching. In fact, let's read it. I hear you flipping, we might as well do it together, right? Romans 10, 8 says, but what does it say? The word is near you. In your mouth and in your heart, that is the word of faith which we're preaching. That if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with a heart, a person believes, resulting in righteousness. With the mouth, he confesses, resulting in salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. For there's no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call on him. Whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved, will be delivered, will be rescued. How then will we call on him in whom we have not believed? How then will they believe in him who have they not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? How will they preach unless they're sent? Just as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. However, they did not all heed the good news. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our our report. So faith comes from hearing. And hearing by the word of Christ. I love how the scripture says, today is the day of salvation. Today is the day of salvation. And whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. This morning, this might seem a little mixed. You say, what are we talking about exactly? We're talking about when the Lord comes to visit. We're talking about the times we've missed it, but the times we can call on him and be delivered. And it is never too late to call on the name of the Lord. As long as you're still sucking air, it is never too late to call on the name of the Lord. I would hate to say at the end of your life, Thank God you're going to heaven, and yet nothing else was accomplished because you just kept missing what God was doing. Do you notice we don't miss it because God decides not to do it? We don't miss it because we weren't. He, he doesn't say these people missed it because they were in the wrong country. He doesn't say they missed it because they didn't read enough books about it. You see, the most educated were the ones that missed it the most, really. He didn't say they missed it because they didn't have the knowledge. He didn't say they missed it because they 
weren't in the right place, they missed it because it didn't look like they thought it was going to look. See, most of the time we miss God, it's not because we didn't study enough. It's not because we weren't in the right physical location. When we miss what God's doing, it's because we don't see what we thought we were going to see. We don't recognize it. It doesn't say we weren't there for it. It just says we didn't recognize it. How many times has God attempted to do some great thing in Lloyd Minster or done a great thing in Lloyd Minster, and we weren't a part of it because we just didn't see it? We didn't recognize it for what it was. What about your life? How many times has the Lord attempted to to shift you, to move you, to pull you, to push you, and yet it didn't look like what you thought? Maybe to take you to a different level. Maybe to place you in a place you've never been. Maybe to, you, to put you together with, with uh, somebody that could help you along and, and some, some other believers that could assist you. And yet you didn't see it because you didn't recognize what God was doing. And I don't want to be one of those people that goes through life not recognizing God. I don't want to be one of those people that knows everything about him and yet doesn't recognize him when he rocks in the room. Because that's what the religious leaders were like. They knew all the stats on the back of the baseball card. The Messiah stats, they had them down. Know when he's coming, know, when, know where he'll be born, know what he looks like, know what he'll do here, he'll know all the signs he'll do, and yet he did every single one of those things, and they still don't see him. You think the more you know, the better chance you'll have of recognizing Jesus. I am not against knowledge, but I, I believe that you need to study to show yourself approved. I, need, I believe you need to get in the Word. But when we get in the Word, we're not studying intellectually. We are fellowshipping with God. There was a preacher who said this the other day, and I, I, it just stuck with me. He, he was reading from John 7 where Jesus talked about drinking of him. Those that drink of me will never be thirsty again. He says many of us have a thinking relationship with Jesus when we need to have a drinking relationship with Jesus. Now, drinking relationships, not what you're thinking. <laughs> what he's saying is many of us relate to Jesus on an intellectual level when what we need to be relating to him in is, is drinking him in, is fellowshipping with him, is knowing him and the power of his resurrection. Maybe it's time that you quit looking at every video on YouTube and you quit going book to book to book to see how much you can learn. And you just got out your Bible and you just got close to Jesus. And he said, Lord, I don't want to miss you. So Lord, I need to know you and I need to know your voice. Because when you walk in the room, I want to see you and I want to recognize you. And when you move in my life, I want to see it for what it is. And Lord, just rid me of all my expectations that are contrary to what you do. If I'm carrying around any sort of ideas about you that aren't true or ideas about myself that aren't true, would you pluck those things out so that you could plant what really is supposed to be in my life? Some of you should be in a different place than you are right now. I'm not talking about physically. I'm talking about spiritually. God had another thing for you to do or had another place for you to be and you missed it because it didn't look as shiny or as good as you thought it would look. Or you missed it because it kind of messed up with your five-year plan. Or you missed it because it was going to be uncomfortable. It was going to be inconvenient. The things of God are always inconvenient. <laughs> they always are. I've never had God move in my life and said, this worked out so well, conveniently, it didn't mess with my schedule at all. 
It's never happened. Because most of my life, most of your life, we built. And the stuff we built, the Bible says, unless the Lord builds, the people that build are working in vain. You're wasting your time. You're building a nice house. But that, you ever, you ever see a guy build a wall here? You ever see construction go up and then the foreman shows up and goes, that's all going to have to come down. Why? Well, you weren't building according to the plan. You're just doing that. You're wrong about that. It's going to have to come down. You feel like, oh, what am I doing this whole time? That's the way sometimes we feel. And the only problem is that sometimes we're so addicted to the fact that we spent so much time on it. When Jesus says, that's not what I built. That's what you built. You say, well, it's going to stay because I spent a lot of time on this. And I spent a lot of work on this. And God knows I spent money on this. So I'm sorry, Jesus. You're going to have to come up with a different plan. That's a bad idea. When the father comes with his pruning, brand, his pruning shears, it's going to cause you to grow. It's going to cause you to be healthy. It's going to cause you to live. Let him prune. Prune away, God. We want him. Two things I draw from this. Number one, I want to be part of the crowd that gets excited when Jesus is coming into town. You notice that these people aren't just praising God in church. They're praising God in the presence of people that hate Jesus. Sometimes we're so afraid to step on people's toes that we shut up. He says, if you shut up, I'll have to make stones do it for me. That's going to be embarrassing for you. The other thing I draw from this is there is a time, there are times of visitation. And those visitations can be missed. And when they're missed, there are consequences to you missing those things. But the Lord is able to deliver you. He's able to save you. He's able to rescue you. If you will simply come to him, he is the Savior. Salvation belongs to our God, and we join in saying, Hosanna. Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Stand up with me. Thank you, Lord Jesus. God of second chances. If you're a Jonah today, I have good news. The good news is, even though you went to Tarsus when you're supposed to go to Nineveh, your merciful God will save your life. And if you'll repent and turn back, he'll get you on the next boat to, or the next sea creature to Nineveh. You might come out smelling like fish vomit, but you'll get there. I've been Jonah. I'm sure many of you can identify with that. The Lord was leading you, and you said, no, that's too much trouble. Many times we're like Jonah where we we say, Lord, don't send me there because people don't like me there. People won't like what I have to say. Or maybe I... I feel uncomfortable with what you're saying because I've never pictured it myself that way or never pictured your plans that way. But we serve a God who's better than that. Thank God that though we miss our visitation, we, we are so faithful. I'm not saying this so that you'll say, well, I'll just skip, I'll, I'll miss one and I'll get the next train. Because there always seems to be consequences for skipping it. And it's not God that's giving you the consequences. It's you that chose them. 
but he's able to deliver you from those consequences. He's able to rescue you and save you. We serve a Savior. We serve a Savior. We have a Savior. If Jesus were riding into Jerusalem, he gets to about Marshall, or he gets to about Blackfoot, let's say, coming in from the other side. Gets to Blackfoot, and you start to see the lights of the city. And imagine your city has rejected Jesus over and over again. And you know by identifying with Jesus, they'll reject you too. Will we lift our voices and say, I'd rather please God than please people? And when Jesus' version of salvation, which is so much better, the Bible calls it so great a salvation. When his deliverance looks different than your deliverance, will you turn away from yours and turn to his? So I'm going to talk to some of you today that feel like you've missed it. Because the last thing I want is for you to sit in your chair this morning and just say, oh God, I missed it. And you picture Jesus weeping over you and you feel condemned and ashamed and guilty. You're still alive. You're still here. You haven't missed it completely if you're still alive. You're still here. You can still get back on that path, that way that he meant to guide you on this whole time. So if you feel like you missed it. Now, some of you, that's a little thing. Do you know what I mean? See, the more you grow in Christ, the more mature you get in Jesus, the little things seem big, don't they? Things that don't even seem like a big deal to anybody else. They're a big deal to you because you know what it's like to follow Jesus and know his voice. So even a, even a slight variation off course, you go, oh, that didn't feel good. Some of you are new believers and you go, I'm just thankful I showed up today. Well, praise God, I'm thankful too. So we're not going to judge each other on based, based on what we think it means to miss it. Some, some of you, it's a very slight thing. Some of it's a big thing. Today, let's not focus on what we missed Let's focus on the God who can save us. And let's turn back. See, if you cry for the rest of your life about the things you missed, you'll miss what he's doing right now. What he's doing right now is saying, get on my path. Here it is. It's never too late. If you just say, Lord, okay, all right, all right. I'm here. I'm here. They say, good, I've been waiting for you to show up. What took you so long? Let's get on that path.